Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast from the First Christian Church in Great Bend, Kansas. We are a church with a mission of inspiring ordinary people to live extraordinary lives for Christ. It really doesn't matter who you are, what you have done, or how you choose to worship. You belong here. We pray that this week's sermon blesses you and that you feel God's presence through it today. I've always been fascinated by art. Often when we think of art, we think of expressions like paintings, poetry, music, books, and a litany of other things that should belong in a museum. But art has such a more comprehensive breadth that it can include things that we experience all of the time. Things such as dance, prose, music, movies, TV shows, just to name a few. Art is made to evoke emotion. It's something that calls out to us from the depths of our souls. And when we think about art, we can see how it reflects the people around it. When you examine the Renaissance painting, like this one from Michelangelo, you can see the care that the artist took in crafting the form, the inspiration from scripture, the Roman influence. When you wade through Pablo Picasso's blue period, you can immerse yourself in the deep depression of one's soul. Then you have artists that challenge what art can be, stretching their medium, like Jackson Pollock, Renee Marguerite, Frida Kahlo, Van Gogh, Georgia O'Keeffe, Basquiat, Banksy. When it comes to music, you have Bach, Beethoven, Chopin, Mozart, Vivaldi, Handel. All of these composers created beautiful symphonies that range from the highest joy to the lowest sadness. Then, when you consider modern music, you have artists that speak around the world, about the world around them. In the early 20th century, jazz music swept across the nation as the expression of the black struggle in America. You then have artists like Johnny Cash and Dolly Parton who weave together tapestries of tales that take you through time. As music continued to evolve, you have new genres popping up all over the place. The Beatles are reinventing the potential of of an album. Janis Joplin is bringing hippie culture to the masses. Black Sabbath is inventing metal music. The Sugar Hill Gang gives the world a very cheesy look at what hip-hop is. Then you have groups like N.W.A. and the Wu-Tang Clan who renovate the message of rap music to showcase the atrocities within their cities. Now I can go on about movies, TV shows, books, and the like, but the thing that I want you to all notice is that these artists artists built on what came before them. They were inspired by those who came before them, look forward to the future, and express themselves in their own unique way. They used what they learned and observed throughout their lifetime to tell their story and their community story in a unique and powerful way. And they've spread their story across generations. And these stories get told again and again when we interact with these artists and when we pass down their stories. But their stories get reinterpreted and reimplied in different ways. When we see a painting or a movie or hear a song or read a poem, we say, oh my goodness, this speaks to me in such a real way. We have an emotional reaction, a real reaction to something that was created hundreds of years ago. But we don't let it just sit there, saying that was great for the composer in 1820, but it doesn't mean anything for me now. That's just not true, because art lives, it constantly moves. It goes from the self-expression of the artist to the out-interpretation of the audience. In the same way, we can approach scripture as art. 
We need to remember that scripture is not something that is rigid, stuck in the past, and that it has nothing to give us today. Nor can we read the uncomfortable parts of scripture and just ignore them. But we need to read scripture where we are now, find how to apply it in our context, and live it out. The following is an excerpt from You Are My People by Stolman and Kim. Sometimes art, music, and poetry must step forward to make a statement. Ours is no doubt one such moment. Many have taken note of our contemporary crisis of meaning and our culture of violence. Even those at the center have come to recognize the daunting challenges of our present moment. Preemptive wars, a growing tolerance for genocide, mounting economic disparities, substandard health care, massive hunger, dwindling natural resources, and an endangered planet. From ravaging starvation in Africa to the increasing number of refugees in war-torn Pakistan. From the horrific accounts of genocide in Darfur to the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. We find demonstrable evidence that our planet is in grave danger. As Henry Nguyen has observed, history is filled with violence, cruelties, and atrocities committed by people against other people. But never before has it been possible for humanity to commit collective suicide, to destroy the whole planet, and to put an end to all history. The potential for global devastation has shattered conventional renderings of hope, beauty, and meaning. It has violated our sense of self and morality, and it has created a chasm deep enough to engulf political and civic discourse, as well as art, literature, music, and film. But what is perhaps even more disturbing is that the surplus of violence exceeds our capacity to imagine. It shut down our ability to feel, feel, it exacerbates our loss of control, and it results in a deliberating fear. Fear that we are less human than intended. What might all this imply for those of us who are committed to the study of Scripture? Whether out of devotion or dissent, how can Scripture study in the initial years of the 21st century proceed with business as usual in a world at risk and in the grip of death and disaster? Now, a case can surely be made that biblical exegesis on this side of historist paradigms must participate fully in critical junctures of the contemporary world, especially when they are suffused in radical human suffering. As an artistic enterprise informed by historical and ideological sensibilities, biblical interpretation must take into full account our fissure and disconcerting moment in time. Exegetes cannot avert their eyes from the unspeakable acts of violence and our planetary emergency any more than Federico Garcia Lorca could ignore the horrors in his homeland or Picasso the destruction of Guernica. And so perhaps the most urgent challenge for the study of the prophetic literature in the initial years of the new millennium is, again, to make the interface of ancient text and contemporary community more poignant and palpable. Rather than only describing a world of old, the study of the prophetic literature calls for social immersion and ethical formation. It demands intersecting lines of inquiry attention to the world of the text and its networks of meaning, and the dangerous world we inhabit. Or in other words, we must read this ancient text where we are now.
And so often when we approach scripture, we read one verse and we go, hey, sweet, I'm good. I checked that box for today. But that's the wrong mentality to have. We should go to scripture to seek out answers for us in this day and age. We should go to scripture to bring hope to the hopeless, love to the unloved, care for the forgotten. Because it can bring real hope. Let me show you what I mean here and how we can understand the context of scripture and apply it to our world. Now, Lamentations was written during a tumultuous time in ancient Israel's history. Their capital city was destroyed, but more importantly, the temple was destroyed. Their connection to God was obliterated and all hope seemed lost. Lamentations 2 says this, My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out on the ground because of the destruction of my people. Because infants and babes faint in the streets of their city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine as they faint like the wounded in the streets of the city as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. Where's their hope? In the Gospel of Matthew, there's a Canaanite woman who approaches Jesus and, and, and the disciples crying out for help. It says in Matthew 15, Just then, a Canaanite woman from those regions came and was crying out, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter has been possessed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she keeps shouting behind us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And when she had come out, she was kneeling before him and said, Lord, help me. He answered and said, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She goes to Jesus, whom she had heard so much about, and now in her time of need, he rejects her cries? Where is her hope? In the Gospel of John, as Jesus hangs on the cross, the women of Jesus' ministry stand vigil over his death. And his mother, Mary, is at his feet. She watches as her son. Her love is tortured, beaten, and hated. She watches as each nail is driven into the body of her boy, whom she held as a child, whom she nursed as an infant, whom she loved. And I ask you, where is her hope? Are these not the cries of the mother in Palestine, of the sister of those murdered by police in the street, of the parent who is unable to provide for their family, of those who are hated by those who are supposed to love them. Where is their hope? As the remnant of ancient Israel looked upon the ruins of their city, the desolation of their temple, and the destruction of their people, they cried to God. And that cry seemingly fell on deaf ears. Or did it? In the midst of this, this despair, the author of Lamentation says this in chapter 3, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will have hope in him. Now, as all hope seems lost, the Canaanite woman, this nameless woman, stands up to Jesus and says in Matthew 15, Yes, Lord, 
but even the dogs eat the crumbs which are falling from their master's table. And Jesus answers and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed from that hour. As Mary looks upon her dying son, John 19 says this, Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her. And he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. And he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. So I ask you again, where is their hope? Their hope is found in the Lord. For ancient Israel, it was in the knowledge that God had not forgotten them or their sufferings. For the Canaanite woman, it was in the universal nature of the kingdom of God. And for Mary, it was in the new family that comes with the kingdom of God. Do you see how scripture can still speak to us? How the words of the prophets can be applied in our current desperation. How the resilience of the Canaanite woman can inspire others. How the great grief of Mary is consoled by those around her that take care of her. But it doesn't end with scripture. We have work to do. Because it's all good and well to read these words and to feel the comfort and hope that they bring. But now we need to bring that hope to other. We, like artists, need to take what is said in scripture and reimagine it in our own world. Paint our own picture of how the kingdom of God can reign in our world. We need to be the hope bringers. As it says in Matthew 28, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Great Commission gets used for all sorts of things. But when you get down to it, it's about disciples making disciples. So firstly, we have to ask, what does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? Well, a disciple is someone who emulates their mentor. So therefore, to be a disciple of Christ is to emulate Christ. And we can read all about Jesus throughout the Gospels. And we'll see a Jesus who loves the unlovable, who cares for the forgotten, who brings hope to the hopeless. A Jesus who cares for the entire person, regardless of who they are. And a Jesus who is willing to give up everything for the glory of God. So we must emulate that within our context, here and now, and we must remember that Christ is with us always, leading us on the path set before us by God. And we need to be agents of God's glory and kingdom, because if we want to bring heaven to earth in all that we do, it's going to take a lot of hard work. The disciples just didn't talk about it. They did the work. They fed the hungry, clothed the poor, and took care of the marginalized. And if we want to emulate that, we're going to have to prioritize our lives differently. We're going to have to stop being so selfish and start living and loving as Jesus would have, as his disciples would have, because it's been 2,000 years since these words were said. And how do we measure up? How do we need to address the issues around us? What do we need to change? This means that we have to be willing to be uncomfortable. We have to go out into this world, see where the pain and suffering is, and act out against it. And if you're not willing to do this work, to be a disciple of Christ, then stop showing up. Lord, thank you so much for this opportunity to come in and be with you. 
Lord, I pray that as we go out into this world that you keep our eyes open. You show us the opportunities where we can be your hands and feet, where we can bring your glory to those around us, where we could be the agents of your love, of your kindness, of your hope. And I pray that when we approach scripture, we don't do it rigidly or statically, that we, that we can be people who embrace your, your, your scripture as a, as a tool to use, to bring hope, to bring light, to bring life into the lives of those around us. And Lord, we thank you and we praise you for this great hope that we have because of you. And we pray that we can bring that to other people just as Jesus did, just as the disciples did. And I pray that you continue to challenge us in our lives on how we can be more like Jesus and less like us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon, and we hope you are able to join us next week. To learn more about FCC Great Bend, visit us online at firstchristianchurchgb.com. Again, that's firstchristianchurchgb.com. God bless and have a great week.